that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for revealing to us in Scripture what, not just what sanctification is academically or even theologically, but practically. Thank you for not allowing us to escape the real truths about what sanctification means in our lives. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for that reason, for this sanctification, your son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. We are on the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 59. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't realize he was going to spend this much time in between positional and experiential sanctification. I'm not surprised now that we've seen the content and the fullness of what it's doing uh, if you've been following along. But before that, I didn't know. So it's interesting how he works and all these lessons are ordained from eternity past. Uh, Think about that, 59 hours. That's a lot. That's a lot of uh, training. Frankly, I mean, when's the last time you've been through 59 hours of training on anything, right? And that's not to count the 13 or 1400 before that, right? So a lot of good things, a lot of training. Uh, So glad to see all your faces. Uh, Just as a reminder, last night's Bible study, um, for lack of a better term, was a blast. Um, So I just wanted to encourage anyone who's not been attending them regularly to please reconsider. Just Think about it. Just reconsider it. Um, they're quite a thing. It's quite a blessing to be a part of. Um, and there's such goodness in that setting. And we all really need each other now more than ever. So just, you know, if you haven't been able to make it for a variety of reasons, just see what you can do to get there. Go to uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians 3.13. <coughs> Last night, tonight, the last 58 hours, these are all good things. But they come at a bit of a cost. 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Isn't that what I said? Oh, seems like everybody was like flipping around. How much fill of space do you need, people? Get tabs. Second <laughs> Thessalonians 3.13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. What you're doing right now is doing good. This is how it all starts. If you're weary, be encouraged. You have a purpose. As we've learned, grace always has a purpose. You have been predestined to receive grace in so many magnificent ways. Go to Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1. So please, do not grow weary. But given all the grace that comes from this pulpit, from this ministry, from this organization, um, there's really not a cause. I mean, there's certainly enough support structure so that you won't become weary. So you have to ask yourself, if you are becoming weary and you're struggling with certain aspects of your own life, you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? Are you diligent, and we're going to get that word this evening again, 
Are you diligent about your receiving grace? Uh, is your humility of the aggressive sort? Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's part of living the gospel reality is remembering our Lord and Savior so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. One last passage for the sake of encouragement. Go to Galatians 6, 9. Galatians 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Galatians 6, 9. Let us, not, let us not lose heart. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. There's the notion of endurance again. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And so much about sanctification as he's been teaching us is not just about the academics, it's actually a very practical issue. Sanctification, I've been using the phrase practical sanctification on purpose because I want to drill that into your heads that sanctification, though there is theology around it, is a very practical issue. You're talking about experiential, this is, we're coming into experiential sanctification. Experiential, the root word is experience. Experience really is practice, practical. That's, they're all related. So if experiential sanctification is put aside as something purely academic, you're going to miss all the goodness in realizing that it's much more, in many ways, practical to our own lives and even the positional aspects, which are judicial uh, and really have just to do with God's gavel coming down, etc. So here's that quote again from uh, William MacDonald. We are often weary in his service, though not weary of it. He was referring to, go to Hebrews 4.10. Hebrews 4.10, he was referring to this passage. We looked at this on Tuesday evening. Hebrews 4.10 For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Again, we are often weary in his service, though not weary of it. Verse 11, Therefore, and is the word, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. If you want to find rest 
you have to cling to humility. You have to find humility. You have to be humble. This is part of what diligence actually means. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Diligence implies humility, which is aggressive, not passive, yet it results in peace and rest. Up here on the board, there's that phrase again, practical sanctification. Sanctification is diligence to enter his rest. That was Hebrews 4.11. Why? For the, or how? For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his own works. Hebrews 4.10. All he did was flip the sentences around. Restlessness is the antithesis of sanctification. So this is a very practical statement. Sanctification is diligence to enter his rest. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his own personal works. Hebrews 4.10. And then just to add to that, restlessness is the antithesis of sanctification. Well, restlessness is a reality. Restlessness is something you are. Uh, It could be your status quo, unfortunately. You could be a restless type person. You could be an unsettled person. You could be an anxious or a worrisome person, which makes one restless. Those are not fruit of the Spirit. Those are other things. Those are things that the flesh is really good at generating. So restlessness is the antithesis of sanctification. So what's the Spirit trying to tell you? What he's saying is that if you live a life of restlessness, something's wrong. If you live a life of restlessness, something is wrong. Restlessness is typically the fruit of searching for something that's missing. That's what restlessness by definition kind of is. It's searching for something that's missing. That's why restless people are prime suspects for addictions. Remember? They are constantly searching for answers. Only as we've learned in the past, they are, quote, looking for love in all the wrong places. To borrow from that late country singer, Johnny Lee, I'm going to read some stanzas of that song. Because I like it. And I think it's appropriate. I'm not going to sing it, though. <clears throat> he says, well I, well, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good-time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win, and telling those sweet lies and losing again. In the chorus, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Hoping to find a friend and a lover, I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. And I was alone then, no love in sight, and I did everything I could to get me through the night. Don't know where it started or where it might end. I turned to a stranger just like a friend. And the chorus again. And then finally, and you came knocking on my heart's door. You're everything I've been looking for. No more looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Now that I found a friend and a lover, I'll bless the day I discover you, oh you. The final you in that song has to be Jesus. (laughs) It has to be. It doesn't matter if you're happily married or not. It doesn't matter. It has to be Jesus. The one we're looking for, the one that 
people are always looking in the wrong place for fulfillment. They're looking at all the wrong places, the wrong faces, playing games, right? Just like he said. So the final you in that song has to be Jesus, no other. Otherwise, you're stuck. That's the point. Otherwise, you're stuck. When you find the love of your life in Jesus, what happens? Well, for starters, while you live for others, as his personal desire is, your greatest joy is in pleasing him. When you find the love of your life in Jesus, your greatest joy is in pleasing him. If that means living for others, then so be it. You live your life, in other words, to please him, your husband. Now, I can only imagine a bunch of feminists just rolled over in their grave. Oh, no, I'm not living for any man. But I'm saying those things as a strong, spiritually healthy man of God. I love that I have Jesus. I love that Jesus is the great love of my life. I wouldn't have it any other way. He wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't have anybody in my life, including my spouse or my children or anybody that I care about, have it any other way. That's what I want for all of you. I don't want you to be tangled with the details of life. So I speak the way Paul spoke, and if you read your Bible, you know that I'm true. It's true. And he was a great example of a man sanctified experientially in his own right. And he stayed, you know, he was single his whole life, as you know. I suppose a wonderful place to start when investigating practical sanctification in the Scriptures is what Paul wrote. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 2 Corinthians 5.5. This heart of Paul's is everywhere. It's everywhere. His first love, his truest love, is Jesus Christ. And that's the way it needs to be for all of us. And once we get that straight, boy, we're not looking for love in the wrong places anymore. We're not even disappointed in others. We can begin to think like he thinks still. You know, we don't have to be totally discouraged by what we see in others. I was thinking a lot about that because that came up in the Bible study last night. How um, Jesus was around people and how he was brilliant, I mean, beyond anything any of us could ever be in the spiritual life. He pretty much knew everything, right? And he pretty much saw through everyone like x-rays. And he saw all their ugliness. But yet, he wasn't punching people out. He wasn't, he didn't have this horrific approach to those people. He dined with the prostitutes and the sinners, as they said. And the tax collectors, the dregs of society, in other words. The ones that really did have problems. But yet there he was. And so we have to begin to think like that. We say if Jesus could do that, then why can't we? There's got to be more than just being frustrated with people in this world because people are frustrating. But they're also, everyone has some good in them too. And it says, you know, especially to those of the faith. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, 
We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, I remember teaching this in some detail a few years ago, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, doesn't matter if we're here on earth or up in heaven, to be what? To be pleasing to him. Whatever that means. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's a very practical verse, isn't it? We're going to actually stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our deeds are going to be evaluated. Well, that's a very practical statement then. So when we talk about sanctification in the practical sense, all structured theology aside, we realize that life is dynamic. Remember, dynamic derives from the Greek word dunamis, that one that's in Romans 1.16, the power of God, that's the, uh, the gospel. Dynamic derives from the Greek word dunamis, which means explosive, like dynamite. And I was thinking about it, um, how God's power is in our life. It's not just, I'm going to blow your mind by giving you more stuff. It's dynamite. And what happens if you go near dynamite and it's lit? You might blow up, right? So I just drew a little picture of your plans. These are your plans. These are the ones you had. These are your plans. You ready? There it is. Yeah. Right? Those are your plans on the right. And there's a big old gang of dynamite, dunamis, underneath your plans. And all God does is this. Right? You have to think of it that way. Your plans are garbage. This is a dynamic spiritual life, but that's the power of the dynamic spiritual life. He has, your, your plans blow up so that God can replace them with His own. All these, you know, these achievements and these five-year goals and all these other things and the, our plans and how we're going to be you know, this, that, and the other... Uh, is a joke. It's literally a joke. Go to Proverbs 16.1 and until you realize that it's a joke, until you humbly allow the picture on the board to take place, until you get to see Him blow up your plans in your face, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be stuck. So let's look at some Scripture here so you don't think I'm just in the mood to draw pictures Proverbs 16.1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Woody Allen is attributed to the quote, If you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. Proverbs 19.21, go there. Proverbs 19.21, Many plans are in a man's heart but the counsel of the Lord will stand. You can have all the plans you want, truth be told. All you're, and this, I've taught you this, all you're doing with your own plans is frustrating yourself. Because at the end of the day, God's, you know, the Lord is the rock. He's even described as the rock. He's not moving. So 
you might as well, like the example I gave you a few years ago, you might as well go outside and start kicking the cement foundation of this building. And what are you going to walk away with? A sore toe. But the building is not going to move. Just remember that God's plans predate your life. Say that to yourself. God's plans predate your life. Go to Psalm 3311. Psalm 3311. <clears throat> it's so humbling when you put the power of God in proper perspective in your life, how silly, silly is really about as good a word as you're going to get, how silly it is to propose that <clears throat> your plans are ever going to stand. Now, you might luck out, and some things might line up, but it's really kind of purely by luck, until, until you have the Lord's heart through the Word of God. Psalm 33:11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. So He's consistent. We humans change our plans like we change our underwear. Well, most people. <laughs> the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. You might say to yourself, well, how does this work? It works when your plans are the same as God's. You say, well, when, then when do my plans? I mean, I've got to think about some things, right? Well, when does that happen? Go to Proverbs 16.3. Proverbs 16.3. The answer is, how does this work then, is that your plans eventually, through means of grace, through learning the Word of God, through prayer, through understanding the leading of the Spirit, what it means to be filled, all these kinds of things, then your plans begin to dovetail with His. They begin coming together. And they coalesce. And lo and behold, the things that you want to do are the same things He wants you to do. Proverbs 16.3 So, commit... Oh, there's the C word again. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The disclaimer is that your plans are the same as his. That's how it works. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. You learn God's plans for you by learning the Word of God first, then learning what it means to discern the voice of his Spirit through prayer. It's then with the right godly perspective that you'll be able to recognize and embrace the good things he's doing in your life. Eventually, once He changes you, you begin making good decisions as an instrument of righteousness. We're going to talk about this a little bit this evening. It came up at the very tail end of Tuesday's lesson. Let me say that again. Once He changes you, that's what sanctification means. That's what practical sanctification, experiential, progressive sanctification means. It means that He's literally going to change you. And once He changes you, you begin making good decisions as an instrument of righteousness. This echoes of that very subtle point we left off with on Tuesday. Go to Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9. You there? Okay. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. For some reason, now this is where 
the crux of this evening's message is going to rest. For some reason, people are gun-shy about saying that they, personally, are able to produce divine good fruit in of themselves. But the Bible says that's what experiential sanctification means. He promises to change you, to transform you. And we're going to look at Scripture to get it right, because there's remnants of religion in some of our souls that's still holding some of you back. We need to take some time with this now. To be experientially sanctified doesn't simply mean that you understand more. It's that you are more. It doesn't simply mean that you understand more. That's part of it, of course. That's the precursory activity. But it doesn't stop there. Experiential sanctification means that you are more. It is because your mind has been transformed, as we'll see in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. But it's because you are more. In other words, there's a real result in view. Not just understanding a new way of, quote, doing business, so to speak. That's where the academics fail. And I say academics as that group of people that just want to be academic that don't like the idea of practical sanctification. They just want to inundate you and themselves in reams of doctrines, many of which are so ridiculously unnecessary for understanding the will of God for your life. Most people get stuck in the weeds and they scratch their head and they say, it's been 15 years and I still don't know what the heck I'm supposed to be doing. It seems I'm more frustrated now than I was before. I'm confused. I feel stupider than I did yesterday because I just keep getting more and more, quote, doctrines put on my lap about this thing called sanctification. I'm lost. Hmm. Well, that's a shame. So I want to say up front, there's a real result in view when we talk about experiential sanctification, not just understanding a new way of doing business. The result is that you have been changed. You ready? You have been changed. If you're sanctified, you have been changed as a person. And it's because of that new reality that you are able to do good works as an instrument of righteousness. Now, go to Romans 12.2. We'll talk about this a little bit more. It's an important point. I think some of you might have been robbed along the way of the reality that is experiential sanctification. Romans 12.2 And you should be very encouraged and even excited knowing, if you didn't know it before, that He literally is changing you. Not just changing your mind, changing you. That's different. Romans 12.2 And do not be conformed to this world, but, you ready? Be. Say it with me. Be. Okay? There's a sense of being. You are a human being. You be. That's who you are. Right? Be transformed. Okay. How? By the renewing of your mind. 
So we have the result first, and then we have the method, if you would, or a method. One of a few methods, frankly, base methods, because the Spirit's in there, but he's not, he's not mentioned here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So up here on the board, I'm giving you a little help with the capitals. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to focus on the first B. Look closely at what Scripture is stating. You are literally transformed. Not just your mind, not just some academic understanding, you. You are literally transformed. The cause is the renewing of your mind, but the mind is not the final objective. You are. Your person, your heart. I think some of you need to let that sink in. Some of you will need to challenge some old remnants of a religion you were once steeped in. One that proposed that being filled with the Spirit, a.k.a. living the spiritual life, was like a light switch. Well, that system of thinking is so insidious that the byproducts of it are felt for years afterwards, like any religion. Some people, someone, some people in here have come from certain religions that they still feel the stickiness of. They're like, ah, I was thinking like a so-and-so. I was thinking like I used to think in that religious thing. And it's just the way it goes when you've been steeped in something. That's how insidious, you know, good satanic religion, good false doctrines are. They have a certain stickiness, but we're working them out. Here we are at another place where this is true for some of you. For years you thought that the fruit that you bear in time was something that you had nothing at all to do with. In other words, since the connection to this light switch theory regarding spirituality was so strongly typed in you, so deeply ingrained, you missed out on the simple fact that God changes you. He changes you. In other words, you bear fruit of the Spirit because you are changed. So, some people have missed out on the simple fact that God changes you. He doesn't just act through you. He literally changes you so that the things that you think, say, and do after you're changed are actually attributed to you as a changed person. You can't take any credit for it because He changed you to His own glory. But the reality is, you have been changed. Figuratively speaking, grace flows through you from God to others. I've taught you this. That's wonderful theology. That's a wonderful way to think about how grace flows. But when's the last time you spit on the ground and said, oh, there's some grace. Grace isn't a tangible thing. So we're speaking figuratively, correct? Grace flows through us how? Figuratively. Grace doesn't come out of our veins. We don't sweat it out. We don't emanate it. So you have to get the whole theology correctly apportioned in your soul. 
So figuratively speaking, grace flows through you from God to others. It's a wonderful way to describe how grace is animated. That's what our lessons on the abundance of grace were all about. Our cups are filled, then perisuo, they overflow, etc., etc. Let me see if I can explain what the Spirit's saying here a little differently. And for most of you, this may be the first time you've ever considered this perspective. So don't be frustrated if you don't, quote, get it right away. Just relax and listen. There are two ways to look at the spiritual life. God works through us like a marionette. In other words, you're a puppet. Or God changes us thoroughly and His Spirit helps guide us further. Either we're puppets or we're truly changed. If someone ties strings on your wrist right now, and you're not the person that's ever going to go like this, but they got the strings and they go, you're going to do it. Or maybe God says to you, if the other perspective is, God's changed you and He says, everybody do this. You want to do it because you want to be pleasing to Him. Because you have been changed. Do you see the difference? Now, before you run off and make a decision about which one is correct, do not rest on what you've clung to in the past, necessarily. Have the faith of a child. Before you do that, let me ask you to ponder something else. We know that to God, sanctification is one big, completed reality. He's not bound to the construct of time. We humans won't fully get it until our position and our experience are one and the same, something we call out as phase three of sanctification, a.k.a. ultimate sanctification. In other words, we're not going to fully realize what God already sees as fact until we're ultimately sanctified. So here's what I want you to ponder. And don't just do it now. Keep on pondering it over this weekend and read your Bibles with the faith of a child too. Seeking wisdom on the matter. Ponder what ultimate sanctification is going to be. Right now. Say, well, what's ultimate sanctification going to be? First, it's the consummation of God's will for His children. He says, I'm going to sanctify you. And ultimately, you're going to be totally sanctified. That's my will for you. And He doesn't speak to you like a little puppet. He says, I'm going to literally change you. Okay? So first, ultimate sanctification is the consummation of God's will for His children, which means that the general direction of experiential sanctification, life now, is a direct function of ultimate sanctification, the eternal state. In other words, that's where He's taking us. And if ultimately we're going to be totally changed in heaven, we are going to be totally transformed. The act of transforming us now is in that general direction, correct? They're not two different things. So ask yourselves, are we going to be little puppets in heaven? Is that what he wanted? Is that what he wants for us now? Does he want a bunch of little puppets? He goes, hmm. 
Or are we going to be individuals who love and worship God as totally, ultimately sanctified people? Which one are we going to be? So we look forward to help us out with the now. But what's the end goal? The end goal is that we're going to be totally, ultimately sanctified. Totally changed. I hope you answer the latter of the two options there. Because I don't believe that Scripture in one way says that we're going to be puppets. I don't think that's, that would um, mutilate love. He wants sentient creatures to love him because they love him. Not because he's going, love me. He wants you to love him. So what's ultimate sanctification going to be? He says, I'm going to give you my son's heart straight up. We just noted this in Romans 12 too, the point on the board. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look closely at what Scripture is stating. You are literally transformed. The cause is the renewing of your mind, but the mind is not the final objective. You are. Your person, your heart. Here's the amplified version, just for one last perspective on it. Romans 12, 2 in the amplified. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in His plan and purpose for you. So why in the world would we suppose that we are like puppets now, experientially, if ultimately we aren't meant to be that at all? Why would we propose that we're like little puppets now if ultimately it's not going to be that way at all? But you see, that's what certain perversions of spirituality propose, especially those of the light switch sort. What light switch spirituality has done is taken the figurative statements in the Bible and made them literal, but at the expense of the plenary scripture that actually is meant to be taken literally. For example, go to 1 Corinthians 15.10. What light switch spirituality has done is taken the figurative statements in the Bible and made them literal, but at the expense of the plenary scripture that is actually, or actually is meant to be taken literally. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a literal statement. I am what I am. Are you not literally sitting there? Anthony, are you not literally you this evening? You don't look like yourself. You must not be literally you this evening. Right? I am. When someone says I am, they mean I am. That's a literal statement. Okay. So by the grace of God, he doesn't miss the point which is whatever thing, whatever he is good in him, it's by the grace of God. So he's not taking credit for being who he is. He's just saying, this is who I am. <laughs> I'm changed. He changed me. That's sanctification. Great. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a literal statement. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, 
But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Now that's a figurative statement. We, won't, we don't walk through the spiritual life and there's a, a, a dude called grace standing there. Grace is a concept. Grace is how God expresses himself. But it's a figurative thing. Grace doesn't flow through our veins, literally, correct? But you are literally changed by grace. So, think of it that way. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me, figurative speaking there, a.k.a. grace doesn't actually do the spiritual life, a changed person does as a result of being changed by grace. Those are two different concepts. When he says, I am, up here on the board, that's the Greek word, imi. I am, from imi, means to be, exist, some, existence, i.e., without explicit limits, properly convey straightforward being. <laughs> There's not surrogate being implied. In other words, you are you. Whatever you are, like Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. But he's not saying I'm not who I am. He's saying I'm being who I am. I go out and I labor. I didn't want to labor yesterday because I wasn't changed yesterday. But now I'm changed and now I want to labor. Does that make sense? So God uses an instrument of righteousness that's been changed by the grace of himself to do good works, to, to glorify God. That's what it means when Paul says, I am. He's not a puppet. He realizes that he's been changed by the grace of God. See, light switch theology, light switch spirituality doesn't allow for that. That's why I need you to think about it. So I am, from I me, means to be, exist, some, existence without explicit limits, properly conveying straightforward being. There's not surrogate. There's not a surrogate. It should be an A in there. There's not a surrogate being implied. The point is that when a person like Paul here says, I am, it literally means just what the original Greek word meant to convey. It's a statement about one's person. And it doesn't get much more personal than the Greek word, I me, which translates, I am. Let me say it this way. If you say, I am a smart person, and you have a really high IQ, is it fair for someone else to say, you're smart? Or should they be muddying the concept with, well, you're stupid, but God's smart, so as a passive vessel, you're smart? Either you're smart or you're not smart. Fair statement? Isn't it proper to say you're smart because you actually have been created that way? It was God's will that you had a certain intellect. Is that? Of course it's fair to say that. Okay? I am smart. Can't be arrogant about it and say I'm smart because of me, because God made you that way. And that's the distinction. How about if you're good at something? Isn't it fair for someone to say, wow, you, you're really good at that? Of course. Of course. Are they seeing God or you? They are seeing you as the result of God's grace. So understanding I am, <clears throat> up here on the board, 
The difference between the sanctified believer and the unsanctified one is that the prior attributes all good things about them, including their personal spiritual maturation to God's grace, whereas the latter takes credit for those things. That's basically the difference. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. The unsanctified person says, I am what I am by my own human effort. So what the Spirit's saying is, it's okay to say, I am a soldier for Christ. I am in love with Christ. I am the guy who loves other people. I am that person. I wasn't yesterday. Heck, God knows that. But I am today. Praise be to God. You see? 1 Corinthians 15.10, John 8.58, it's okay for someone to say to you, you have a good heart. I have people say that to me at least once or twice a decade. (laughs) You have a good heart. And for you to say wholeheartedly, thank you. As long as you never forget, it's okay for you to say thank you. But listen, as long as you never forget who transformed your heart for you, that it was by God's grace, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am, I me, what I am, I me. Let me show you another place where this same Greek word is used, and the context will hopefully most certainly cement the truth about the word in your soul. Go to John 8.58. John 8.58. I mean, this is what's supposed to happen, people. He's going to change us. He doesn't say he's going to make us a bunch of puppets. He says he's going to literally change us. Uh, John 8:58 Jesus said to them Truly truly I say to you before Abraham was born I am I me Same Greek word nothing special just I am He says this I was me before okay <laughs> I'm me now cuz he's the same yesterday today and for always so I'm me That's who I am I am Okay he was proving a point but you hopefully you get the connection Are we we to suppose that Jesus was somehow mistaken about his own person? Are we to suppose that he wasn't confident in being himself, recognizing that he too had been made as a unique man? Are we to propose or suppose these things? We'd never question such things. But yet we wonder about how effectively God might make us in his image. More on understanding I am. The Bible doesn't say we are his image. It says we are made new in his image. We are made in his image. And then he transforms us into that image. Do you understand? But that doesn't mean we're God. He's not saying I'm going to make you me. I want children that love me because they love me. I want the real deal. Otherwise, he would have just made a bunch of puppets. But he didn't make a bunch of puppets. So the Bible doesn't say that we are his image. 
It says that we are made new in his image, uh, Genesis 127, 2 Corinthians 3.18, implying that while righteousness becomes us, as we are sanctified, we never lose our individuality. In other words, God's saying, when I sanctify you, the beautiful part about it is that I'm going to sanctify you. You, Anthony, Tammy, Michael, Pat, everybody in here, you are going to love me. You are going to bear good fruit. You are going to lay down your life for others. You're going to do these things that you didn't do before you were sanctified this way. And it really is going to be, quote, the new you. Think of ultimately, because that's the direction I'm taking you. Ultimately, all you're going to really want to do is worship me 24-7. And it's really going to be you in heaven. I don't just, I'm just not going to have a bazillion strings. I'm going to be puppeting everybody. Now bow down to me. Now bow down again to me. Now sing a few songs. No. We're going to be us. And we're going to be completely transformed. Well, that's the direction he's taking us. So if we're somewhere in between, we're transformed. We are. We are. And we have the faculties. We have been given a new self. We've been reborn, right? Born again. We have the ability to hold whatever that is, that supernatural reality that is the changed person that actually can do righteous things. The only thing holding us back is a stupid flesh, right? Ugh. But you need to get that through your heads that you are literally changed. You don't follow some protocol light switch that says, oh, I'm, oh, I'm changed, I'm not. Oh, I'm changed, I'm not. Nope. No, you are being changed. Genesis one twenty seven. go there. Genesis one twenty seven. <clears throat> very important, folks. <clears throat> Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Heck, we're male and female as it is, so we can't be exactly him. We know that. Fundamentally. So he's not interested in making a bunch of little hymns. He wants creatures that can relate to him. So he created them, us, in his own image. Go to the New Testament reference. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So an image doesn't mean a mimeograph copy. It's something else. It means of the same kind, ability to relate. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Again, what is he trying to do? Ultimately, he's going to sanctify us completely. We're in the middle ground right now. He's moving us in that direction. He's saying, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you so that you start bearing good fruit that brings glory to me. People around you are actually going to see you as what I call a witness. And I want them to know that I'm the one who changed you. I want them to know what Paul said, you are what you are by the grace of God. I want them to know that I've, I've done that thing that was ridiculous in their eyes. 
I want them to see that in you because that brings glory to me. So understanding I am, and the Bible doesn't say we are His image, it says that we are made new in His image, implying that while righteousness becomes us as we are sanctified, we never lose our individuality. At the end of the day, you either believe you're sanctified or you don't. If you believe the Bible, then you must believe all of the Bible, which says many times throughout Scripture, both directly and indirectly, that God is intent on changing His children. Not just somehow working through passive vessels, but actually changing them. Therefore, just like His Son knew exactly who He was, we ought to know exactly who we are in Him. That's a glorious thing. The fact that He can change us that way is a glorious thing. These are the concepts that we need to surrender our hearts to, as this is what plenary Scripture teaches. Being filled means living a life of gratitude, not because God knows how to glorify Himself, He does, but that you, you, with first-hand experience, as a sanctified individual, know how to glorify God. That's the practical side of sanctification. You know how to, how to glorify God. Why? Because you've been changed. So concentrate. Living the spiritual life. It's not about doing this or that, specifically as part of some homemade plan. It's about being filled. Plurao means to be fulfilled. The control aspect of being filled is a blessed surrender, not a disgruntled adolescent submission. You see, a changed person hears the Holy Spirit and says, I'm right there with you. I confess. Let's do this thing. The right thing to do in my life right now is X, Y, and Z. I confess it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping me, just like Jesus said you would, for helping me. You don't just help yourself, although you are helping yourself, figuratively speaking, by bringing glory to yourself through me as a vessel, but in all reality, practical sanctification says you're helping me. And to whatever degree I've been changed, to that degree I respond to you. That's what it means to be controlled. It has nothing to do with some stupid pro, uh, protocol, stupid donkey protocol. Nothing. That's religion. Do you see how insidious Satan is with false doctrines? Do you see how deeply woven that kind of a thing goes into your soul? Do you know how many remnants there are that I still have before me to work out in your souls? Most of you haven't even thought about some of the things he's got me thinking about. But they all go back to certain religious practices, let's call it. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't ignore Him, in other words. Don't, you know, turn a blind eye to Him. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, teachings, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also who will bring it to pass. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. What does that mean? And may your spirit and soul and body. Who's that? If you say, I am, I am my spirit, my soul, and my body. At this juncture. He's talking about you. This is very personal. You get sanctified. Without blame. Preserved complete. Without blame. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's looking forward. Faithful is he who calls you. And also. He also will bring it to pass. That's a promise. He's saying. I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to sanctify you. I'm going to change you. I'm not just going to show, I'm going to be revealed in you because you're going to become like my son. You're going to have the same heart as he did. You're going to think the way he thought, but you're not going to be him. You're going to be you, changed. Does that make sense? That's an important thing, folks. This passage amplifies a principle from Tuesday evening's class up here on the board. Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. We sense His presence in everything. You sense His presence. What are we, by the way? We've got a little bit more time here. I'm going to go a little bit over. What are we? Ask that question. Go to 2 Timothy 2.3. 2 Timothy 2.3. I guess we'll end here. What are we? I mean, we're, very, we're a lot of things, right? Okay. Okay, so, well, most, a lot of you are too old now, no offense, but say we're all, not, we're all young enough. We all go down to, you know, the Army office tomorrow. We're signing up. Okay, you go through boot camp, you graduate. What are you going to say to someone when they say, you're not a soldier? You're going to say, yes, I am. No, you're not. They're like, yes, I am. Yes, what? I am. Who's the one that's going to go out in the battlefield and fight? Who's going to lose their life, maybe? Who's going to take the bruises and the shots and the bleeding and all that kind of stuff? You are. Of course, the doctrines of Uncle Sam are going to be working through you. You will be given provision to be successful, like bullets and guns and blah, blah, blah. But you're the one that's out there. You have been transformed into a soldier. You were enlisted. 2 Corinthians 2.3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. If this had nothing to do with us, then why does it hurt so much? If it wasn't, I am going through these things, like, I am going through these things. If it wasn't me, if I was just a puppet, why the hell does it hurt so much? You know why? Because it is you. Pain, joy, These things are grace gifts from God. 
So suffer hardship with me. We've been predestined, remember? Predestined to suffer, to prosper. We, I am predestined. Not the puppet Ed Collins. I am predestined to suffer and to prosper. Make no mistake about it. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. The truth is that we are soldiers. We are soldiers for Christ. And that means something practical. We don't just get to say, oh, we're soldiers for Christ. <laughs> look at my notebook. It says right here, soldiers for Christ. Look at, look at 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. It says, I'm a soldier for Christ. Great. Now be one. You want to don the uniform? Then let's go. Let's go hit the field. Let's go in the trenches. Let's do this thing. Booyah. So it's true that we are soldiers for Christ, and that means something practical. There's nothing worse than a soldier who dons a uniform for the mere sake of looking the part. And I'll end this way. <clears throat> soldiering, and we saw this on Tuesday, soldiering is a way of life, not a job. You're on call 24-7. The only way you won't become utterly frustrated with the uncommon requests for your time and energy is if you are totally, if you totally submit to the cause you must commit fully, otherwise you'll be miserable. We are soldiers. And it's not a job, folks. It's who we are. I am a soldier for Christ. And until you get used to that, until you recognize it, until you accept it, you're going to be miserable. If you think you can compartmentalize God out and go, you know, church and God, they're like a job to me. But I have, you know, my day planner. Look at my day planner. All this pink and purple right here, this is, my, this is me time. The green, that's God. But this time's mine. No, God says, take your green marker and go. It's all mine. I own you. 24-7, I own you. And you say, I am a slave of Christ. I am a soldier of Christ. I am an ambassador of Christ. Amen? Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.